This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This is Chapter 10 of the WCBS 880 Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Most Americans have made up their mind about Prince Charles, namely, they aren't his biggest fans. But after reading Sally Bedell Smith's new biography, Prince Charles, The Passions and Paradoxes of an Improbable Life, even the staunchest Charles detractors may give him a break. The royal biographer recently visited our studios and dished with our Marla Diamond. You talk about him being modern, uh, being into green energy, and also very traditional. In what ways is Charles traditional, and how do the two coincide? Well, he's very traditional. Take his organic farm that is it, that is at his estate, his country estate. Uh, it's all or it's all based on organic principles. He raises rare breeds of livestock. Um, he he uh, he's learned the ancient art of hedge laying, um, but he has this very sophisticated water filtration system that um, is based on reeds and, and um, you know, it's, it's kind of an obscure technique, but it works. So that's very, he even has a sign saying, morning, you're entering an old-fashioned place. Um, but as I say, he, he, he has an Aston Martin from 1970 that he, that, that uses recycled wine, um, as its fuel. Um, so, he, you know, he, he's, he's quirky, but, um, but he, but he does have very advanced ideas. You know, he certainly was, you know, I went all the way back to 1970 and found a speech that he gave that was so far-sighted in terms of, um, mankind's effect on the environment. And then in subsequent years, one of his influences was Al Gore. And he did a he did a documentary in the late 80s. Um, and he really began to lead the charge in raising awareness about climate change. Um, he was a pioneer in trying to persuade um, people how, you know, companies to uh, farm more sustainably and not cut down rainforests. Only a few weeks ago, he met with all the major chocolate manufacturers and talked to them about farming cocoa more sustainably. So, you know, he's had these really, uh, you know, he's had an impact that people don't fully recognize. And you say he still has a valet? So here he is. He has a valet who, like who, dre- who dresses him like G- Lord Grantham was dressed in Downton Abbey. Um, and he has a, some shoes that are made out of 18th century reindeer leather. Um, but uh, but he, he actually loves being old-fashioned in those ways. One of his architects who built, he has this incredible thing called a sanctuary in his garden at Highgrove that it was that was designed, he 
for his measurements and everything in it is handmade. And the architect told me that he, he was he was hired not only because he believes in classical architecture, which Charles is a real proponent of, but he said he looked at my shoes and he saw that they were mended. He saw the stitches on my shoes and he liked that because it means that he said to me, he said, I know how to preserve good things that are well made. That's kind of the way he thinks and it's so unusual. Right. So let's let's get to what everybody wants to know. Uh, the marriage uh, between Prince Charles and Princess Diana was doomed from the start. She was 11 or 12 years younger than him. And it, it seemed almost that uh, in your book you say that Prince Philip said, you know, go ahead and, and do it, you know, make, and make an honest woman of her. Was he pushed into this? And uh, what did you find out about the start of that marriage and the breakdown? Well, you're absolutely right that he was pushed. He, he, it was somewhat self-imposed because he said he really had to get married by 30. And he talked a lot about his ideal wife and what her role would be. He gave us a whole series of interviews in the 1970s. And then he, he was, and he was known as this kind of, you know, this heartthrob all through the 1970s as he pursued a whole series of flings with very well-born women, none of whom turned out to be suitable. Um, but um, Diana appeared on the scene, and the sort of shocking thing that I found out was that they'd only been together 12 times before he proposed. The, the tabloid media were really making life miserable for her and were starting to damage her reputation. And it was in that spirit that Philip wrote a letter to his son. Now this gives you a sense of the formality of their relationship, that they just yeah. couldn't sit down and talk right. about it. He wrote him a letter, Charles interpreted it, as bullying and pressuring him. And so even though he had a lot of misgivings because, and we can talk about this as well, he was in love with Camilla Parker Bowles mm -hmm. and had been uh, since 1972. So we're talking 198, early 1981. And, but, you know, so he knew, and she looked, you know, Diana seemed to be the sort of um, woman that he was advised was a sweet charactered girl and he could put her on a pedestal and he could learn to love her as his beloved grandmother, the Queen Mother, had learned to love the King George VI, who was at that time the Duke of York. But um, So he thought he, he, he had the best intentions, but he had no idea about her emotional turbulence yeah. that she had experienced since she was six years old and her parents had a very, very difficult divorce. So they just didn't know each other. 12 years was mm -hmm. at that time, 1930, and he was 31. Yeah. It was a big chasm. They had no interest in common. He thought she could come to appreciate what interested him and that she would support him. But it just, she had her own troubles and he was ill-equipped to deal with them and she was not really prepared to provide the sort of support that he needed. But she wanted it. She you wanted talk it. About her she wanted it. Grand show. She wanted it. She she said, I love the countryside. Yeah. You know, I I I'll you know love it when it's cold and wet and I can slide around in the mud while you're all shooting grouse and and everybody thought that she was it that she was all in for it but it turned out that she was very much an urban creature she wanted to you know hang around London and um, 
and 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 felt trapped whenever she went to one of the royal estates, stultified yeah. by the court, and that she couldn't you know have any freedom. Right, and you talk about that revealing interview with Martin Bashir that she did, yeah. uh, talking about her bulimia and the breakdown of the marriage, and that there were three in the marriage, yes, uh, including Camilla. Right, um, and then you know we heard all the tawdry uh, phone calls between Charles and Camilla, and we all took her side. But Everybody you, took you her side. You really don't in this book. Well, it's not that I don't take her side. I try to provide the perspective of the whole situation because um, Charles did, you know, he didn't completely stay away. But he, he, he didn't resume his relationship with Camilla until 1986. And actually, when Diana gave that interview in 19... 95 there were four in the marriage because she had she had already begun her relationship with James Hewitt mm -hmm. the um, the um, cavalry officer mm -hmm. so um, I think what I was trying to do in the book was provide some balance to show that um, that she had a lot of problems he I think to his credit when she first really started showing evidence of depression and mood swings and by her own admission both in the book that Andrew Morton published in 1992 that was her true story and which she actually cooperated in and the royal family didn't find that out until later and then the Martin Bashir interview she she admitted that she had all these quite alarming symptoms so it was nothing that people made up it was what she herself said and he tried to get her to get some psychotherapy but she resisted because she she was paranoid she and felt that the, she felt that the royal family was trying to control her right. she wouldn't take Valium she right. met with the psychotherapist for eight years I mean for eight, eight times what I what I was fascinated by is that actually Charles quite got along with this man and he ended up in therapy with him for 14 years which for the royal family was astonishing because they just there was a term called ostriching and whenever they were confronted anybody in the royal family was something unpleasant they just stuck their head in the sand <laughs> and um, and so he that was a modern thing for him to do actually mm -hmm. um, another paradox right, right. it's a wonder they had children but when she died he said the first thing he said was they're going to blame me. they're all going to blame yeah. me and that had everything to do with the nature of the tabloid coverage of him for all the years of his marriage to Diana and even you know in, in, since the divorce they the tabloids almost without exception took Diana's side yeah. except at the very end when she was she was going through that relationship with Dodi Fayad for the last six months six weeks of her life you write that he was addicted to and, and he was a he was, he was bad news he right. was 42 years old they yeah. called him the boy and I remember talking to David Putnam the uh, producer and director who did chariots of fire which was which was financed by Dodi's father mm -hmm. and he said Dodi he said that Doty was with his father was like a dog on a choke chain that his father would let him out and then he would mess up and then he'd yank him mm -hmm. back mm -hmm. and that Diana I thought this was a really good insight that Diana operated on her instincts but that she she wasn't particularly rational so right. she she couldn't connect and put things together I mean she actually thought that her panorama interview which was devastating for Charles mm -hmm. basically she said he should never be king um, 
you know, massive sort of treachery on her part. She went to William at school and said, you're going to be proud of me. And she, so she had no sense of what the consequences of that would be. And of course, the immediate consequence of that was that the Queen wrote a letter to both Charles and Diana, who were separated by then, and said, it's time, you have to get divorced, right. which was, you know, a, a, you know, a trauma for the royal family, for the heir to the throne to get divorced. Right. But it was just, it became un completely unsustainable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, he was in mourning for her. He was uh, in mourning for her. it seemed that the, uh, the Queen, uh, the, the, the House of Windsor sort of messed this up. They, they did not look good in the pu on the public relations side. The Queen did not want to have a very public state funeral, correct? Well, and the people did. They started putting flowers outside of Buckingham it, it, Palace. I, I arrived in London that Friday, so I saw the parks, which are unlike anything I'd ever seen. I'd been to London a lot, but initially the Queen was actually following the wishes of the Spencer family to have a private funeral. Then they realized that they had to do something public, not mm -hmm. a state funeral, but a, just something with all the, they didn't have military bands and all of that, because that's not what Diana would have wanted. But they went to work very fast and they devised a funeral that was completely appropriate to Diana mm -hmm. with you know a little military presence with the caisson, the horse-drawn caisson, and I thought very sensitively representatives of all the charities of which she'd been patron. The biggest mistake that, she, that, that the Queen made, because they were all up in their, her, her estate in Scotland, Balmoral, yes. and, and she resisted something that was, we think now seems quite silly, but it was such a tradition that when the Queen wasn't in residence at Buckingham Palace, her sovereign flag would be taken down and there'd be an empty flagpole. And the uh, people and the press were furious that there wasn't something at half-staff. And she really res dug in her heels for about two days. And finally, her advisors said, ma'am, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, almost an insurrection on the streets of London. And she said, yes, okay, we'll put up the union flag at half-staff. But the other decision she made, which was to keep the boys up at Balmoral, as long as she could, mm -hmm. and not come down to London to right. to commune with her right. subjects, I believe, and now I think others, 20 years on, agree that she was probably for one of the only times in her life she was putting her family before her duty. Her duty would have been to come to London immediately mm -hmm. and um, say something to the people. But she wanted to protect those boys. Her grandmotherly instincts kicked in, and it was really helpful to, to them because she knew that they were going to face a really challenging situation yeah. by being in that funeral procession. Yeah. So they came a little earlier. They came on Friday, and then she gave that quite brilliant speech on Friday night on live television, which she really hated to do. Um, and you know, and Charles was very supportive of all of this and, you know, behind the scenes helped nudge her in that direction. Right. So... It's but, he was, but he was also afraid, um, and because William and Harry did not want to walk in the funeral procession. Okay. And it was a, the night before, they were all having dinner at Buckingham Palace, and Prince Philip, to his credit, stepped forward and said, because he wasn't originally supposed to be part of it, he said, if I, if I walk, 
will you walk? Because if you don't walk, you will regret it for the rest of, their li of your lives. And Charles was relieved because he was quite afraid that if the boys didn't walk and he was out there, that people would taunt him mm -hmm. or something bad would happen. Mm -hmm. So having the boys there, I think, was important for them, but it was also important for Charles. Sure, it's a buffer. A, a buffer, and, uh, exactly. So tell us about Camilla. Camilla was one of the great sort of <laughs> surprises of this book. What does he see in her? Uh, he, well, he, you know, he, I've, I pinpointed the moment when they met, which right. was uh, the summer of 1972, and it was ironically through um, the woman who had been his first love, not real love of his life, but who he had sort of learned a little bit about, an older woman, more experienced, who he met at Cambridge. And she, they remained friends. She was Catholic. They were, they were never going to be able to marry um, because those were the rules in those days. But she was living in London, and her downstairs neighbor happened to be Camilla Shand. And, um, and she said to Prince Charles, I think I have the girl for you. And so she invited her up for a drink, and Charles met her, and he absolutely fell head over heels in love with her. And she is, as, as one of her friends told me, she walks into the room, and you know you're going to have a laugh. Right. She's earthy. She's funny. She's got a lively, irreverent personality. She was very attractive, and as one of her friends said, she was a warm, maternal, um, laughing creature and very sexy. And if you see pictures of her in those days, she was. And she was a little bit older than he was. Right. And, and, you know, when he was in boarding school, she left school at 16, so she was you know, roaring around London with a smart set and had a series of boyfriends, including Andrew Parker Bowles, who was this tall, um, virile cavalry officer, and she was madly in love with him um, when she met Charles. But conveniently, Andrew was posted overseas, so they had a, Charles and Camilla had a, had a kind of lovely six-month romance. Right. Um, he wasn't ready to marry. Um, she was not appropriate for him because she had a past. She had been with, obviously had love affairs with, with, with a series of men. And for the Prince of Wales at that point, um, he had to marry somebody who was who we could virginal. Put, virginal, who could put on a pedestal. And Diana filled that bill. Right. And so, but Diana didn't come for eight years later. But he was he was upset, and here's one. Here, there's there's something I discovered that I mean, really, the Crown could not make this up because <laughs> because great show. It is a great show. I love I it. Love but it. I mean, this is this shows how truth can be cause sort of more amazing than fiction. Um, you know, both uh, Camilla's father and. Um, Andrew Parker Bowles' father were great friends, and they said, enough of this dithering. And so they actually conspired and um, posted an engagement notice in the oh. Times of London that forced Andrew to propose to her. And so they got married three months later, and Charles was sort of, you know, thunderstruck. He thought yeah. we were having such fun, and why did she do this? But they took up again and began fox hunting again. But that so they they there it was sort of love interrupted at various moments. But um, but it was an enduring love, you know, a real bond. Um, he was very loyal to her. She was very supportive to him from the very beginning. She was a confidant, as one of his one of her friends said to me. 
she listened to him. You know, he could talk to her, and he needed somebody like that. And having watched them together, I, I could I could see that bond. I could see them at events and the sort of winks and the, you know, the the raised eyebrows and the whispers. Right. And um, so, she, you know, she did eventually bring him happiness. Did, did he communicate with her on uh, the night before his wedding to Diana? No. Okay. Uh, there was a rumor that two nights before the wedding they had slept together, and uh, I, I got confirmation from at least three or four people that that absolutely wasn't true, that Camilla and Andrew Parker Bowles left Buckingham. There was a big party at Buckingham Palace, and Diana and Charles went to their apartments. And mm -hmm. so that was just one of the many unfounded stories that ended up in the tabloids that sort of... Um, slanted coverage against Camilla. She, she's been through a lot. You know, her, her, mm -hmm. her great-grandmother, Alice Keppel, was somewhat notoriously the mistress of Charles's great-great-grandfather. And that's what she said to Edward him the seventh. Well, I don't think she actually, she probably, she had the, she had the cheekiness to yeah. say that at some point. But she's quite proud of her racy ancestor. And one of the really, really smart things she did after she married Charles was she kept her own house, which is about 15 miles away from his house in the country. And she goes there to escape all the attendants and everything, and she can put her feet up and be, you know, wear her jeans and entertain her friends and see her grandkids. Uh, but she keeps a portrait of Alice Keppel right. on her drawing room wall. Mm -hmm. And she also learned one of the essential lessons from Alice Keppel, which was discretion, because she <laughs> Alice burned all of Edward VII's letters. And Camilla, with the exception of one brief interview she gave um, back in 2013, right before his Charles's 65th birthday, she, you know, she says things, but she doesn't, she's been very discreet. And the press over there, by the way, loves her. You paint a pretty flattering picture of her as well. Yeah, she's I mean, seen as the Rottweiler. Diana called her the Rottweiler. Rottweiler. I mean, Diana was obsessed with her, and um, you know, in the in the beginning, quite rightly, I think, because yeah. Charles made the unfortunate mistake of being too honest with Diana and saying Camilla and I have had an intimate relationship. She's been, been my confidant, one of my best friends, but it's but it's but it's over. Um, but she didn't. She said that was. She said to one of their um, advisors that was not a clear answer. Mm -hmm. And so she was pretty obsessed with her. It, it diminished a little bit, and then when she really knew that he had gone back to her in 1986, then she became really obsessed with her. I mean, she even confronted her at a, at a birthday party. Right. Um, and it, you know, it did send her spinning. Right. So, at, let's go back to uh, after Diana's death. Yes. And his intent to show the press and the public that he was as good of a father as she was as a mother. Yes. I think... That I think he always had been a good father. He he loved. I mean, when when William was born, it was so sweet. He went out into the crowds and talked about how wonderful it was. I mean, he was the he was the first royal. You know, was the first royal father to witness the birth of one of his children who was born in a hospital for the first time. They were usually born in the palace, and and when they were little, he helped bathe them, and when they were out in the country, he taught them about 
you know, the animals and the birds and the plants, and he taught them how to fish and how to shoot, and they loved that. That's sort of in the DNA of the royal family. Yeah. Um, so obviously he was very busy. He has a schedule that's planned six months in advance, but he was a good father. Um, however, Diana always overshadowed mm -hmm. that. So after Diana's death, there was, a, there was a moment when he took Prince Harry to South Africa and the press could see up close the affection of their relationship. The Spice Girls were there and there were some wonderful pictures of them uh, backstage with the Spice Girls. Um, so it began to dawn on people that Charles really was a very devoted father. And to his credit, I think he recognized that they needed to have a more normal, modern upbringing than he had had. And so he gave them much more freedom to go to the school that they wanted to, which was Eton College, mm -hmm. where he really should have gone, which is right yeah. next to Windsor Castle, to go into the army, which is what they wanted. And then as they got older, to um, choose their own advisors who have been very good for them to really um, highly regarded military men and, and a veteran diplomat who you know was recommended by the Queen. So he's known enough well, he's affectionate with them and they're very devoted to him. I mean, when at one point when Charles was getting a lot of grief in the press, William said in some kind of a press setting, he said, just give my father a break. <laughs> just give him a break. Right. Yeah. Right. So much attention is paid to them, especially William and Kate and their children now. Yes. And they are really in the media spotlight and, and people love to follow them. Not so much for, for Charles and Camilla, but they're leading a happy life together. They, uh, Charles and Camilla, yeah, they yeah. are leading we don't a happy life. Hear much about? That. No, we don't. But but it's to anybody who encounters them in public, you can see. I mean, he says, you know, he calls her my darling wife, and and she. I have some pictures in my book of them together, and you can just see it that they that they have a real bond and that that they have they sort of share the same goofy sense of humor yeah. as they both love Monty Python and the goon show which we don't know much about but um, but it's a kind of you know it's it, it, humor is important to any relationship I think and it's essential for them um, and she has she keeps him level she really does and she keeps his feet on the ground and um, and I think you can't underestimate the importance of that and, Let's talk about his ascendancy to the throne. Yeah. Uh, the queen has been queen for over 60 years. 65. 65 years. Absolute record um, and counting. Right. And um, first of all, why, why did she stay that long instead of handing the reins to her son? And tell us about the fact that you know Charles would be the oldest living king when he ascends. Yes, the all of that is, is true. The, the reason the queen won't abdicate, um, <laughs> there was a funny meme that went around when Pope Benedict stepped down, and it was a picture of him, and there was a picture of her underneath, and, and the caption was, wuss. <laughs> and, but, but, but I, I realized when I was writing my book about the Queen that the fundamental element of the coronation was the sacred vow that she made to serve until death mm -hmm. and the anointing with the holy oil. 
Um, not so much the crown that was put on her head, but those were the two elements. And, and she has repeated that vow several times over the course of her life. And that is the essence of the continuity of the monarchy, that, that she, the queen is dead, long live the king. Now, the exception to that is if she becomes incapacitated mentally or physically. There's something called the Regency Act, which was a version of which was put into effect when King George III, you know, had had, had a mental breakdown or whatever it exactly he happened to him. And his son, the then Prince of Wales, took took over full powers as the Prince Regent. And that would happen if this if that were to occur to the Queen. Charles would, would become the Prince Regent and on her death would become King Charles III. Um, so there is, there is, everything is kind of set up um, for any eventuality, except abdication is really um, almost forbidden word because they, you know, even though the abdication of King Edward VIII yes. to marry Wallace Warfield Simpson yes. um, was traumatic. It was traumatic for her. It was traumatic because it, it introduced uncertainty into the continuity yeah. of the royal family. Right. But let's face it, if it hadn't happened, the queen would be a minor royal right now, right. and she wouldn't have reigned for 65 years. Her father never wanted to be king. No, he didn't. And, um, and, and as a consequence, for the first 10 years of her life, she led a sort of relatively normal existence. Mm -hmm. I mean, her parents did some royal duties, but they were a very tight, uh, loving family. And um, she had the benefit of that, but um, he was quite a wonderful king, and you know was a was a real symbol of fortitude during World War II. And she learned a lot from him. Right. He taught her. She said when she was asked once what most she admired about him, she said steadfastness. And um, I think she also believes in training and. Charles, although he has followed his own path all these years and done things that he couldn't possibly have done as a king because they were controversial, but since 1990, I mean, since 2008, when they've begun the transition toward his eventually taking the throne on his mother's death, he's been schooled by the Queen's principal private secretary in the limitations of that role, which 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 are very you know which are which are there. I mean, he will have to take advice from people. He won't be able to give outspoken um, lectures. Um, Does he want to be king? Yes, I believe he wants to be king, and there is no mechanism to skip over him and give the throne to William. And I learned an awful lot about William and Harry and 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 Kate and how they have crafted their roles uh, in preparation for taking the crown in middle age. Now Charles's reign will be short because you know he'll he'll be short, certainly far shorter. 69 years old. He'll please? he'll be 70 next year. Okay. And um so you know right. and, and and what does Camilla become? Well, when they got married in 2005, there was still a lot of um antipathy toward her yeah. and many, many people in Diana's camp. So they made up a title, Princess Consort, which never existed before. But um, uh, it was to placate the people who were pro-Diana. 
and their hope over time has been that Camilla would be more accepted, which I think has happened. Um, it's in Charles's power to name her queen. She has every right under English common law to have that title, and there's a strong feeling that if she didn't have it, she would be inferior in some fashion. He wants her to be queen, and I believe she will be Queen Camilla, and I think people will get used to it, get over it, as it were. <laughs> If you can't get enough of Charles, you'll be happy to hear the second season of The Crown on Netflix will touch on the prince's relationship with his father, Prince Philip. And the FX miniseries The Feud plans to focus its second season on Charles and Diana. Prince Charles, The Passions and Paradoxes of an Improbable Life is published by Random House. That's where we close the book on this week's chapter of the WCBS 880 Author Talks podcast. Let us know how we're doing. Email us at books at WCBS880.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books.